Today we'll be reading from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21, and it's called, A Woman with a Disabling Spirit. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And not not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bound on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. The mustard seed and the leaven. He said, therefore, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for your word. We treasure it. Uh, We ask for your Holy Spirit to be here with us as we we study uh, the Gospel of Luke. We ask that your Spirit would minister to our hearts and minds, uh, even though the things coming out of my mouth in this sermon may be different from what's going on in people's hearts and their lives. We ask that you would minister to people right where they're at. In Jesus' name. Amen. Did you guys know that Jesus was a uh, faithful church attender? You hear people say, you know, I I, I don't go to church because I have a personal relationship with Jesus and and I don't need church. Jesus is God, and even he didn't use that excuse. Right, So, so if anyone had a reason not to go to church, you would think that it would be him. You know, he didn't didn't say, I I don't go to church because... um, I have a personal relationship with me, right? It's not like, so, but this is what Luke recorded for us in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, I'm just backtracking to Luke chapter 4, because we're actually going to be looking at that quite a bit this evening, even though we're studying Luke chapter 13. But back to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. As was his custom, he didn't wake up and think to himself, you know, there's going to be a really good football game today, and, you know, I'm just just not going to be able to make it. The Romans are playing the Zealots, and, um, you know, that's going to be a great game. And if any of you know anything about the Romans and the Zealots, anything they would have competed against with each other would have been really awesome. But he didn't think, man, they meet so early. I just want to sleep in. It says, as was his custom, and he went to the synagogue. Now look at where we find Jesus in Luke chapter 13, verse 10. It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So there he is again in the synagogue, as was his custom. 
way back in chapter 4. That's what he was doing here, forwarding down to where we are in the present, studying Luke chapter 10. Here he is in the synagogue. Now something I find fascinating about verse 10 is that this is the last time we read about Jesus teaching in a synagogue. And I don't think that's a reason not to attend church anymore, by the way. I think this is telling us how serious things got between Jesus and the religious leaders that he couldn't step foot into a synagogue anymore. That things were getting really, really tenuous and abrasive. Now let's do a quick foreshadow into verse 17 of Luke chapter 13. And this is what it says. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. His adversaries were the ruler of the synagogue and other religious rulers, Uh, Those folks don't like to be put to shame. In fact, no one likes to be put to shame, right? None of us likes to be put to shame. But people in power especially don't like to be put to shame with people that are kind of following them, that they're kind of leading. They don't like that. And these guys really don't like that. And these guys are using their power, which is more than just kind of the spiritual clout, because these guys actually have other clout, like political clout. And so they're going to use everything that they can to enact a revenge for Jesus putting them to shame. Now, let's look forward to a little bit even further, and let's look at Luke chapter 19 to just see how bad this got. Luke chapter 19, verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple, so not synagogue, a temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Let's figure out how to kill this guy. Let's get rid of this guy. You see how bad this is? This is getting really bad. This is getting really antagonistic. So keep these antagonistic relationships in mind as we go through the scriptures this evening, as well as as we go through the scriptures, because we're going to be studying the Gospel of Luke for a while here. And keep that in mind, because I think it's going to be helpful in helping you understand what's going on and help you feel what's going on. Last week we talked about context how important context was. That's something that we need to keep in mind all the time whenever we study the Bible. What are the surrounding verses about? And I shared last week about context, and and if you didn't get that, you can jump on iTunes and listen to that sermon if you need more information about that. So I'm just going to be really brief. And in looking in our context, verses 10 through 21, how do we stay in context with the rest of the surrounding verses and the chapter? Because sometimes people study this and they get fixed upon what's happening there and they think that it's about Sabbath. Right? You, you would think like, oh, it's, this, this is a story about the Sabbath. This is a story about healing on the Sabbath. When if you look earlier or later, it's, it's not a Sabbath story. That, that's a minor point, but that's not the main point. And then when we get to the two parables of the kingdom of God in verses 18 through 21, what's the context? How does it harmoniously tie into the healing on the Sabbath in the synagogue? And how does it tie into all the other verses that are going on around it? And we'll get to verses 18 through 21 later in this study. But something I want to point out right now is that those parables are tied into the preceding verses and they're not a separate thought. So for example, in our reading today that Adriana did so well, she read a title to separate verses 17 and 18. And sometimes we separate things like that. And the people that wrote the Bible are separating that to help us kind of break up the stories a little bit easier and a little bit better so that they can do that. But when we do that, sometimes we are separating one teaching from the other when they're actually tied together. 
So the preceding teachings are actually linked. When you look at verse 18 and when you look at verse 17, there's this word there, therefore. Therefore. Referencing back to the preceding verses. So in verse 18 where it says therefore, it's referencing back to verse 17 and what happened before that. So those parables aren't there without Jesus teaching verses 10 through 17. So those parables need to be linked to the teaching before. Now sometimes when people study the Bible and they study these parables independent of what's happening around them, you can do that, and you can gain some truths from that, and you can learn from that, but it's not always the main point. Okay, so we got to study these things in context. Now, back to Luke chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. Let's start there. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, one of the main characters in this story is this transformed, regenerated woman. Now, let's put ourselves in this woman's community for a moment. She's probably had a group of people who have known her and have accepted her with her disability, just like many of us know people with disabilities and we accept them into our community. And there are people in your life who have had disabilities and you don't see them as disabled anymore because you've been around them so much and for so long. And especially when you grow up with them, you kind of lose that, right? If you grow up with them, you know, I have some relatives with disabilities and I don't see those disabilities anymore. They're just not something that I see. Someone else has to point out those disabilities to me like my children. Children have a knack for doing things like that, right? They're just naturally curious, and so they'll ask different questions. If it's a relative or if it's someone on the street or whatever, you know, they're curious as to why things are different. So they'll say, Daddy, how come blah, 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 or how come such and such? And they'll ask these types of questions, you know, when we're on there. And so I I teach them that there's a way to ask these questions and a time to ask these questions and a tactful way and a gracious way to do these things, not in front of the person pointing at them shouting and stuff like that. So that's not the way to do it. But after being around uh, the relatives with disabilities for a while, or around people at church with disabilities for a while, or around any situation for a while, they don't notice it anymore. They're just kind of used to it. They just kind of grow up with it. And so this can be a really good thing because the lines of discrimination against those who have disabilities, that's kind of being erased. And that could be a good thing. That people with disabilities are accepted the way that they are, and, and some of us have developed relationships like this, But this can also be a bad thing. This can also be a bad thing because when the person with a disability is overlooked, that they're present, but they're not socially known, or that their needs are kind of like forgotten, that they're there, people are used to seeing them there, and they're tolerated, but they aren't embraced. When we're so accustomed to seeing them around and we come to a point when we see them physically, but we no longer see that they indeed have needs. So we see them, but their needs are just too much trouble, their needs are just too much inconvenience. And so I wonder, I wonder how it was for this woman who had this disability for 18 years, who had been going to synagogue for 18 years who had been kind of in this community for 18 years, that she was kind of seen there, but she wasn't sought after. That she was tolerated, but I don't know if she was embraced or not. I'm I'm getting the feeling that she wasn't, because we'll get to that later, that Jesus saw her. 
that she was present in the community, but she wasn't included. And, you know, I, I don't know these things. I'm just kind of getting a hunch that this is the way that it was. 18 years bent over with this disability, unable to straighten herself out. Because after being bent over for 18 years like this, you're pretty well conditioned to stay that way. Right? Your muscles are conditioned to stay that way. Your nervous system is conditioned to stay this way. You are conditioned to stay this way. Your spine is going to be really hard to straighten up. And so she learned to eat this way and drink this way and worship this way and work in this way, all in this position. And then Jesus saw her. Jesus saw her to free her, to heal her. Now I want us to look at something interesting in verse 11, as well as verse 16. It says, she had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Now keep your finger on that. Go to verse 16. Satan bound for 18 years. Now I want us to keep in mind that Luke is a doctor. Right? Luke is a medical doctor. He, he's familiar with these type of things. He's, he has a background in these kind of physical problems. And so he doesn't bring it that so heavily into this. But he does bring this demonic, satanic influence into the lives of some people. And I'm not saying that if you're sick or if you have some kind of ailment or something that it's satanic or that it's demonic. I'm not saying that at all. Sometimes it's just medical. But Luke here recognized that this is something more than medical. And he doesn't get into all the medical problems, but he recognized that this woman's physical disorder was more than physical. Something spiritual was going on here as well. Now, this is just an observation. I think if we look at the Gospel of Luke as a whole... It's clear that Luke has been presenting Jesus as, as more powerful than Satan. Ever since the temptations of Luke chapter 4, Luke is pre- presenting Jesus as someone who can break the grip of Satan on people's lives. Whether it's raising people from the dead, healing lepers, whatever, all these types of miracles that, that have been happening. Jesus' ability to break Satan's grip on people's lives, he's showing that. Now let's take a quick look at Luke chapter 4. And we're going to go into verse 18 and we're going to read until verse 21. Because this is going to show us what Jesus is all about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. Now, verse 20 is telling us that Jesus is taking the position of a teacher. He's sitting down. And this is right after he reads from Isaiah's text. And this is what he said in verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what Jesus was teaching those people in that synagogue was that the things Isaiah wrote about and that he prophesied about six centuries earlier, right in front of their eyes, he's saying... The kingdom of God is now open for business. It's right now. And what Jesus does for this woman in Luke chapter 13 is exactly what he came here to do. He he came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And from Luke 4 on, we see that Jesus has set out to do that. From Luke 4 up till this point and when we go forward, this is what he set out to do. It's the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. So when we get to Luke chapter 13, verses 12 through 13, Jesus continues to fulfill this prophecy. And let's go into verse 12. When Jesus saw her. Now a lot of people saw her. 
all the people in her community saw her for 18 years with this kind of disability. Many people saw her through her life. She's been seen by many people for many years, but being seen by Jesus is so different than being seen by others. Carrying on verse 12 and 13, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Something interesting in this story is that Jesus approached this woman. This woman who was probably considered the least of these in her synagogue, she wasn't the one that approached Jesus. I think that she was probably pretty used to just kind of going to church. And probably not seeking anything different. She was probably just used to going there and saying hi to people and just kind of being there and, you know, I'm going to be bent over like this, I'm going to worship like this, I'm going to, this is how I am. And then you notice verses 12 and 13, Jesus saw her, he called her, he said to her, he laid his hands on her. This is a beautiful, beautiful story. I can make a Christmas story out of this. Because we have a God who comes to us. We have a God who comes to us. Jesus came to us. Next week we celebrate His birth. Right? It's Christmas. A birth that was designed and initiated by God. That God would send His Son so that He would be our atonement. That He came to us. right? A Savior who saves us from our sin. That's why He was born. And it's, it's not for you and I to exchange presents. Even though I'm, I, I'm more than happy to accept anything you give me. But, but that's not the reason... And it's not Santa Claus. I, I need to share this story with you because I, I really like it. Cause, and it happened just this past Friday. My eldest daughter got into a debate with uh, one of her classmates about Santa Claus. If any of you believe in Santa Claus, please step out for a minute and then come back in. I just, you know, I, I don't want to ruin your, I don't know what to call that. Okay, so she's in a debate with one of her friends about whether Santa Claus is real or not. So they're debating back and forth, and her friend is insisting that Santa Claus is real, and my daughter is telling her, no, he's not. And so they're just debating back and forth about these things. And so after a while, my daughter's kind of fed up. And so, and so she, she was like, you know what? If you believe that Santa Claus is real, you just stay up all night long, and when he doesn't show up, you'll know I'm right. And I laughed, right? I think it's funny. And, and so later on, my wife and I were talking, and my wife's concern was like, what if her parents get upset at us for spoiling her belief in Santa Claus? And I, and I was saying, like, you know, we're not responsible for parents lying to their children. We're not responsible for that, right? That, that's on them. So anyway, that's the story. Just wanting those of you who are telling children that Santa is real and that, that the debate that you may have if you're, you know, relatives show up here and they see my kids and they have a debate about Santa, I'm just letting you know that, that that might happen, you know, that my kids might say. And it's not like they keep it to themselves. They're not shouting out in the malls and stuff, Santa's not real, that guy you're taking a picture with is not real. They're not doing that. You know, they're not, they're, they're just, you know, when, when they get fed up with this stuff and they'll be like, you know what, and they'll, they'll tell you. Anyway, back to our text. What was Jesus doing? What was Jesus doing? Well, Jesus was establishing his kingdom. 
And that's what a king does. He establishes his kingdom. And according to Isaiah, Jesus setting this woman free from oppression in Luke chapter 13 was a sign of establishing his kingdom. Now let's move on to verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Man, this guy's a party pooper. This guy's a main, this is a big party pooper here. Someone gets healed after this 18-year disability, and this ruler of the synagogue is upset at that. And you get the feeling that, you know, this guy has known her. She's been there for a while. Unless, you know, he was just like an interim rabbi or something like that. But, you know, you figure if the, the rabbi's been there for a while, he knows this woman. And she's been regenerated. And the first thing out of his mouth is, you didn't do this properly. Your, your timing is just all off. Hey, what? Come on, man. You, you've known this woman for a long time. How about, like, even fake it and just say, like, yay. Or, you know, something. Just, just like, no. So this guy is attempting to put down Jesus. But I also think that this guy is attempting to put down that woman. For letting that happen. Right? For letting this healing take place with her. Because here she is, you know, she, she, she must have been so happy. She must have been so glad, and she's standing erect, and she's rejoicing and stuff like that. And this guy's like, that shouldn't happen on the Sabbath. And for this woman to feel like, oh, he's my rabbi, and I've had this relationship, and he's saying it's wrong, maybe it is. And can you imagine her feelings there? Like she's, she just got healed, and then someone slams her with this thing, and she can't really celebrate. You know, she's she just holding up. And so Jesus doesn't play that. Jesus doesn't allow that. Jesus will not stand for that. Jesus stands up for the weak, and and he doesn't like that. So see what happens in verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Now, I think Jesus is really smart. I think he's a brilliant man. I think those people didn't know Jesus very well. Some of those people knew that woman, and that woman probably there was getting some snickers probably from the other people around her and saying, like, yeah, why would you do that? This is the wrong day. This is the Sabbath day. And, you know, she's like this. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. So anybody who would have thought that looks to Jesus and says, like, what? You called me a what? And so all the attention is now focused on him, and she's kind of like free. Because she's called these guys out, these religious leaders. Anybody that has a different belief is like, you are a hypocrite. What would you say if someone called you a name? Your attention is focused on them and your venom will be directed towards them. And so he kind of just releases this woman by calling these guys hypocrites. And that's kind of what he's done on the cross as well. He's hanging on the cross and he says, Father, your wrath on sin, your penalty of sin, it's on me. I'm going to take all of that. So God, it's me. And so he can cover us from our sins and and this is just his... His physical way of covering this woman, I think. And when he calls this word, you hypocrites, like all this venom that may have been directed towards this woman, is now, it's all towards him. And he can take it. And you notice how Luke referred to Jesus as Lord in verse 15. Jesus said back in Luke chapter 6 verse 5, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We dealt with that Sabbath issue back then. I think we're further along now in chapter 13. 
And then Jesus called them hypocrites. And Jesus warned his disciples about hypocrisy back in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, the ruler of the synagogues and those religious leaders and those people that were of like mind, thinking that, yeah, man, you don't heal on the Sabbath. That's wrong. He calls them all hypocrites. Now, how are these people hypocrites? Why is that the word called to them? Because you, you know, you, you can call them like you unsensitive people. But why is it hypocrites? Well, these people understood the letter of the law really, really well. They, they know it. But they totally lost the spirit. They totally lost the heart. They totally lost the purpose of the law. After Jesus called them hypocrites, he asked them two questions to show them how they were being hypocrites. Verses 15 and 16. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You have these animals that you guys tie up because you don't want them to go away. And you could have tied them up prior to the Sabbath, prior to sundown. But eventually, you need to untie them so that they get something to drink. Otherwise, they're going to get dehydrated. And if it's a really hot summer day and they're on the sun, they're going to die. And so there's this whole thing, uh, this law book. And I've shared with some of you about some of these laws that they have. They have a ton of laws. And they have whole sections on tying knots and untying knots. So Jesus is saying, you know what, you guys do that for your livestock. You do that for your donkey and your ox, you know, the sundown, and then maybe you wait till the next day. But sometime during that day, you have to untie them to go get something to drink. Otherwise, you're going to lose them. You're breaking the Sabbath. This woman's been suffering for 18 years. She's been bound, and I'm untying her after 18 years. And you're complaining about it? An ox or a donkey, I mean, you, you, you guys untie them like after 12 hours, after 18 hours, probably 18 hours. You ever think about that? You tie them at sundown, probably 6 p.m. It's the whole day, 6 a.m. is 12 hours. They probably let them go as long as they can, probably till noon or something, and then they let them go. Probably about 18 hours. You go bring your animals to drink something in 18 hours. This daughter of Abraham, your sister... Because they are sons of Abraham. 18 years, not 18 hours, 18 years. And you're raising a fuss like that? Really? You're hypocrites. And you notice this progression that Jesus started out with animals, right? More insignificant. Started out with animals, started out with the manger, and then he moves to daughter of Abraham, and he says 18 years of bondage, and he's moving this grade of importance, right? And so these guys really struggled with legalism. Legalism under the guise of religion, which has become an extremely difficult obstacle to God. You ever wonder why people have a difficulty with having a relationship with Jesus? Because I don't always think that it's Jesus. I think that we do a pretty good job of making Jesus unattractive with our own legalism. With our own legalistic ways. Because sometimes we are more interested in presenting religion than we are a relationship. Sometimes we're more interested in presenting behavior modification more so than life transformation. 
And so we're, we're not presenting the gospel where Jesus is king, that he's, it's his kingdom, this is his church, this is his hospital. The focus is not always on him, and sometimes we're focusing more on this religious legalism stuff. Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, I, I, I want to present to you a relationship. Not a list of do's and don'ts or legalisms. God desires to have a relationship with you. Jesus came for those who recognize that they are sick, that they are sinful. And it's not that Jesus has passed you by. Jesus sees you. It's not an accident that you are here. Jesus sees you. And you might be the least in whatever community that you find yourself in. Whether it's a church or your workplace or school or whatever it is. You might feel that you are the least, but he sees you. He sees you bent over. And he's calling out to you. And he wants to talk to you. And he wants to touch you. And he wants to make you stand up straight. And you're going to glorify him. From him setting you free, from healing you. Verses 17 and 18. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? Now back to the separation of verse 17 and 18 just for a little bit. Please don't be misled that those things don't go together. Verse 18 goes with the story above. Right? This is not to be taught as a separate thing. That conjunction, therefore, in verse 18 is really important. Because it, it, that's what's tying, directly tying what the lesson is before that. So, since that is tying to that, those, these questions in verse 18 are in response to what happened before. What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's referring back to this healing. It's referring back to making this woman stand up straight. So those questions are rhetorical questions because as we read on, we read that Jesus provides us the answers of what the kingdom of God is like and what it's compared to. He gives us these two pictures of what the kingdom of God is like. First one is in verse 19. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now, the mustard seed was a very familiar seed to those listening to Jesus. It was the smallest seed in the Middle East at that time uh, to those people. I'm sure you guys are saying, oh, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. There are other seeds smaller, like the orchid. I know, but back in the Middle East, this is what they knew, and this was the smallest seed at that time. So this is what Jesus was using. And after planting it, it grew really fast, and, and, and it grew grew quite large. And I know some of you are also thinking, like, the mustard seed is not a tree. This is not a botanical debate. This is Jesus drawing a story of a small seed growing into a big plant or a big tree, a big something that houses nests and birds and things like that. Because a mustard seed, a plant can grow up to over three meters in this region, this particular mustard seed. Now, when we read about the birds of the air making nests in its branches... Birds can make nests in plants that are three meters high, right? So it's more than likely Jesus was referring to an Old Testament passage and drawing a picture of the gospel through the Old Testament. It's Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 6. 
And it reads this, All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs, under its branches, and all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. So it's this picture of this unstoppable expansion of the kingdom of God, which is capable of adopting all nations. But the gospel is for everyone. We can, we can house everyone. We can take in everybody. It's a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. You can't stop it. That it's big enough for all these nests and all these birds, all the nations. It's not just for Israel. That we can take them all in. And then verses 20 and 21. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is another picture of the kingdom of God and, and another perspective. Leaven, just this really small amount, and it gets lost in the flour that you can't even see it once you've kind of mixed it in. But it touches every part of it because you bake it, and it's not like half of the bread rises and half of it doesn't, right? I mean, it's, it kind of all rises. It goes throughout. So it's these perspectives of the kingdom of God which start very small, but they actually become quite significant. They permeate everything that they touch. They're, they're part of it. They're, it's unstoppable. It's for everybody. And so the beginnings of a mustard seed and leaven, they seem like nothing. That mustard seed, once you put it in the ground, it, it's hard to find. You're going to be hard-pressed to find it once again. And then you have to worry about um, different uh, birds of the air eating that seed or animals in the ground eating that seed. Um, not enough moisture, too much moisture, too much sun, too little sun, all these elements of nature. A lot of things against that mustard seed. And similarly with leaven, so heavily outnumbered by flour. It's just a little bit of leaven and so insignificant in size. And so it's a lot like the environment Jesus found himself in. He knew that his kingdom was unstoppable. He knew that his gospel was from everybody. He knew he was going to be heavily outnumbered. But it was him and this small group of disciples with so much opposition around them, but their influence, their impact would be unstoppable. That would influence the whole world. Christmas is next week. How does this tie in at all? Well, let me read you the two accounts from Matthew's Gospel and then from Luke, and then we're going to wrap this up here. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Let's go to Luke chapter 2 really quickly, verses 7 and 8. 
I read Matthew's account just to give you a background of Jesus, and Luke chapter 2 is going to give us a different perspective. It's going to give us Luke's perspective here. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Have you ever thought about how our king started? Wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger because there was no place for them in an inn. He didn't come in fine linens. He didn't come in a palace. He was born out in the shepherd's field. And I don't know if you understand this, but the shepherd was kind of the lowliest job on the totem pole. And he was born out where they work. So you talk about humble beginnings. And it's not just about a humble beginning. It's about a humble life. Because the accounts of Jesus, kind of like teenage years and young adults years, you, you, you don't even read about that very much. You just know that he's a carpenter's son. And we can kind of guess about a lot of things, but there's nothing written in the Bible that is exactly speaking to those things. Nothing of prominence. Nothing saying that he went to the best schools or that he had these high-powered friends or anything like that. And when his ministry started, who followed him? Who did he recruit? Twelve guys that you probably wouldn't pick for your own team. Right? Well, if you were to pick a team to change the world, this is probably what you would do. You would probably go to the best universities and recruit the best minds. You would probably network with some really wealthy people so that you would have financial resources to get the backing behind what you were going to do. But this is Jesus, and he didn't even get the best training. He got trained in the Galilee region. He didn't get trained in Jerusalem, where, where that would be the best rabbinical school. He grew up in Nazareth, and this is what was written about Nazareth. In John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel's having a conversation with Philip, and he asked this question, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? pretty bad place. Like, it's, it's not a reputable place. And like, you're kind of wondering like, really? Nazareth? Like, really? Bakersfield? What? Where did he come from? He didn't even recruit any of the twelve disciples from Jerusalem or these high-powered places, right? Where does he start? The Sea of Galilee region. And he gets some fishermen. And he goes to a tax collector's booth. And he recruits a zealot. And it's just this ragtag group of people who follow him for three years and observing how Jesus ministered. And I'm sure they were surprised a lot of the time. And they're like wondering like, oh, this guy's freaky. He can like, he can get the demons out of legion. He can calm storms. He can feed 5,000 people. Like Jesus, he's like amazing. But I think Jesus always had them on their toes because when he went to this synagogue and this disabled woman was there and he chose to heal them, they probably were like, what? I don't get it, Jesus. Like, why would you go there? Because I think they probably would have thought that, you know, we're going to go to the synagogue and I'm sure Jesus is going to minister to somebody. So whoever's going to ask, Jesus is going to do, Jesus is going to minister to them. Just like the lepers who are saying, like, heal us or whatever, and Jesus heals them. Like, people who initiate and say, like, you know, um, you know, help me, and son of David. And he'll go, and here he goes, he walks in the synagogue, and he notices this woman. He sees this woman, and he sees her differently than other people in the synagogue have seen her. This woman. The kingdom of God was revealed in this woman. 
She's insignificant in the eyes of the people. She's just kind of been hanging around there 18 years with a disability. And I, and I hope to meet her in heaven one day because as soon as she stood up and she went forward with her life, I just kind of wonder what she did. And, and I, I wish that this, the story would have gone on with her, but it doesn't, so we'll have to find out later. But do you see what the kingdom is like? It's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. It's this woman. This woman's a mustard seed. There was nothing significant there. She's just kind of part of it. There, She was hardly noticeable. And once you put that mustard seed in the dirt, it's hard to find it, right? Same thing with leaven. Once you put it in the flour, it's hard to find it. That's like the kingdom of God. It, it's, it's hardly noticeable in the beginning, but not forever. It actually doesn't take too long to start seeing the evidences of the kingdom of God. That mustard seed grows pretty fast. That leaven moves throughout the bread pretty fast. It starts out really small, but it has a lot of influence. It has a lot of power. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. How different are we when we look for a job or when we start a business? You know, we write up this great cover letter and we write up this great resume telling our prospective employer how great we are. We have all this education. We have all this experience. We, we have all this value that we can bring to you. In writing a business plan, we write how great our ideas are. We write our investors and we tell them, this is how fast we can turn a profit for you. We are going to be profitable really fast. And sometimes we bring those things into our churches. We bring them into our churches and we present how strong a balance sheet we have so that we can get out a loan. Or we present our branding. We want, to, we want our branding to be really strong and go out there and so that we can be reputable and, and go forward with things. We've been working on our branding at, at Regen. We've been working on a new logo for years. For years, we've been thinking about new ideas and what we can do and all this stuff. And, and so I, I think we can probably come up with like this really strong oak tree logo, right? We're in Oakland and we're an oak tree. and you know, I, I think I prefer an acorn. I think that's more in line with Jesus. Right? The, the, the kingdom of God was and is made present during acts of insignificance, just as like acorn, not like this big old strong tree. That's what we are. And when Jesus chose to heal this woman who was disabled for 18 years, and that was a picture of the kingdom. That was a picture of Jesus saying, like, you are the least of these, you are the weak. Check out what I can do through you. Jesus comes to lift up the despaired and the broken. Now, what if the woman didn't listen to the call of Jesus? What if she just didn't heed the call? She'd still be in bondage. She'd still be disabled. And so Jesus sees you and He's calling you, but if you reject Him, there is no freedom. There is no healing. He's calling us over so that He can set us free, that He can heal us and to help us stand up straight. And you'll know when this happens because you'll be glorifying God. God is at work in His kingdom. 
And it's often in really small and insignificant ways. And sometimes we're looking for these big, important things to be a part of. And we want to be part of these like big works and changing the world and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes I wonder, can anything good come out of Oakland? Can anything good come out of Oakland? When I first moved here, I got transferred by an investment management firm that I was working for. They put me in, a, in company housing, which was on Telegraph Hill. It was on the eighth floor. It was overlooking the bay. They gave me maid service and parking in a garage and all, all these perks. And it was awesome. And I thought that I made it. I was like, yes, I made it. And I started inviting friends over and my parents over. And said, hey, look it, look it, look it. Look at all of this. This is great. This is all great. And then when they were saying like, okay, you had your corporate housing here and we're going to give you a few months of transition. You can stay here, but eventually you're going to have to move because this is just kind of temporary corporate housing. And so I started looking for places to live. And I was looking at Marin County. I was looking at neighborhoods in San Francisco. Uh, and you know the nice neighborhoods. I wasn't looking at Hunter's Point. I wasn't looking at those things. I was looking at the nicer neighborhoods. And I was looking down at the peninsula. I never looked at the East Bay. Never. It was not a consideration at all. People in my office didn't live over here. They all lived there. They all lived in San Francisco, down the peninsula, and in Marin County. That's where they lived. And so I naturally did the same thing. I was, and even when I was like, hey, what's this um, East Bay stuff? And I, we, Oakland already has a reputation. I didn't even bother looking at Oakland, but I was like, what about these other cities around there, like Albany or, or you know, what are those things? And people in my office were like, hmm. I was like, oh, okay, that's cool, whatever. So I never even considered Oakland. And now to think that I've been living here for over eight years and serving in this church. We've been in this church for about eight years. We're not even in the best part of Oakland. I'm like, God, come on. I mean, you could have put us in Montclair or Rockridge or Trestle Glen or Crocker Highlands. You moved us to the San Antonio neighborhood. Do you guys have any idea what this neighborhood is like? I can't confirm this research, but this is what I've heard in working with people with human trafficking. The San Antonio neighborhood is the second highest concentration in the nation of human trafficking. Right here. That's where God put us. I was like, man, that's great. And you put us in Oakland. Do you know that there have been over 100 murders in Oakland for 2011, and the year's not even over yet? And just yesterday, there was a funeral for that baby that got shot in the head in West Oakland when the, the person holding her, I don't know if it was her father or not, was holding her, and the bullet went through his hand and it went through her skull. And it killed a one-year-old. They were filming a rap video. A rival gang came, came by and shot her. That funeral was just yesterday. She was just shot two weeks ago. That's Oakland. And sometimes I just wonder, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I mean, urban isn't completely foreign to me, right? I, I was born in New York City. I was raised in the city of L.A. I grew up in the rougher parts of West Covina before I got into middle school and high school. When I got to middle school and high school, I went to Walnut. Walnut. I mean, come on. How suburb can you get Walnut? 
It was like all walnut groves before. And, and when I moved there, it was all cow pastures. Now it's all built out with like different shops and stuff like that. But when I was there, they didn't have a freeway that went through there. You had to drive all the way around in order to get through the city. It was crazy. But that's where I grew up. And then I went to this private Christian liberal arts school. And then I moved to the suburbs for 10 years, and then I moved to the Bay Area, and I lived in a really nice part of San Francisco. And so what am I doing in Oakland? Lord, are you kidding me? This is what you prepared me for. But yet when I read the Bible, and I study it, and I read about the kingdom, it all makes sense to me. It makes perfectly clear sense to me. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. You know what, I have no interest as a pastor of regeneration in people saying what a great church we are. I have no interest in that. I have no interest in people saying that those people are great. Those, they have great people, and they do great things, even though I know all of that to be true, and I believe that. I believe it. I believe we have a great church. I believe we have great people. I believe that we do great things. I know that. But the fact is, is that if we think that way, it's too small in the kingdom of God. It's too small. The glory is to go to God where people say, what's being done there, I can't believe it. It's unbelievable what's happening there. Because you know what? I know that church and they're not all that. I know those people and they, they're not all that. They're not the most talented of people. They don't have a lot of financial resources. They don't have a lot of stuff. They're not that talented to pull that off. And so, that has to be God. It has to be God. And you know what? I, I actually see that here. I can present a lot of ministries that have been going on in our church. I have no idea how we do what we do in some of those ministries. For example, like cross streets. Do you know Cross Streets is led by a guy who has had more years in the penitentiary than outside of it? I'm not going to point out his name. I mean, if you work there, you already know who I'm talking about. But how he's able to minister to all those people and feed over 100 people every week and, and, and kind of serve this community. And where does that funding come from? Because it's not a lot coming from Regen. And all the help and all that stuff. And, and he's heading that up. I mean, I have no idea how that happens. I have no idea the impact that we have to our community. The testimony that we have outside of our church walls and with our neighbors and with community groups and service providers and, and even local government and all this kind of stuff. Our testimony is really good. And it's not like we worked on it. It's not like I'm going out there politicking to say like, hey, you know, have you heard about Region? And we're doing all this stuff. And I'm not, I, I don't do any of that stuff. We don't do that stuff. And it's just happened. I have no idea. And I really have no idea when I'm looking out at the people in the church. Right? I'm here every Sunday morning. I'm here every Sunday night. And I'm looking out at the church. I'm like, you guys are one bizarre group of people. I mean, look at you. Seriously. 
Right? I mean, this is so odd. You know, it's, it's kind of like, how, how, how are we doing this? Have you ever noticed that? I mean, look around you. Really, take inventory about who's around. Like, how much talent do we really have? How much resources do we really have? And yet, all this stuff is happening out of this church. Now, please don't take it all personal that I'm calling you odd and bizarre and all this kind of stuff. I love you. And I love this church, right? And I'm clumping myself right into that mix. It's not like I'm saying, like, you're odd and I'm normal. It's not... See, this is the thing that I really love about this church, though. It's, it's kind of like God touching a bunch of bent-over people and has made them straight, and we're just glorifying, and we're just kind of going with the flow. And so I find it so biblically accurate that we're so odd and such awesome stuff is happening in the kingdom because of what He's done here. It's just confirmation to me that God is working here because I see us beyond our abilities. Really. I mean, we look at our staff and we're like, how do we pull off the things that we are? How, how are we even in existence? You know? like How, how have we been in existence for over 10 years as, as a church? Most churches that plant in the Bay Area, they don't last. I, don't, I can't tell you how many church planters I've helped through the past 10 years that are no longer here. I don't, I don't even know the number. We're part of this Calvary Chapel movement. They've tried to plant a church here in the Bay Area four times before we ever showed up. I have no idea how we've done it. And another thing is that I've visited a lot of churches over the over 12 years that I've been here. I've probably visited almost, not I wouldn't say all of them because there are over 400 churches in Oakland. But I've visited many of them over the span of all this time. I've met a ton of pastors. And sometimes I go into these churches and I'm there and I think, of course they're going to be successful. Do you know where their money's coming from? The denominational backing or a church backing? and, and You don't even have to work at it. Here's all the money. Buy your building. Staff your churches. Start your programs. Do all this. All this backing and stuff. It's like, yeah, of course. Of course they're going to make it. And you look around and like people are all done to the tens like, what do you do for a living and I'm this I'm that and where'd you go to school and what companies you work for and you, they have all these things and, and you're like man they got all these advanced degrees they got such smart people they got all this financial backing they make a lot so if they tithe in offerings and stuff it's more than what we pull in for sure and, and so they got all this stuff and you kind of wonder like of course they're going to make it funny thing is that I don't necessarily want that for our church. I don't want people to look at us and say, of course. But look at them. I mean, they all have great jobs and they all have advanced degrees and they all make a ton of money. Of course they're going to make it in this community. Of course. I want people to look at us and say like, that's God. <laughs> because look at them. Like, holy moly, how they do that? And so the influence, the impact doesn't make sense compared to what they actually have in terms of talent and resources and stuff like that. I mean, that's the kingdom. Right? It's not something that's coming out of our own resource. That it's something spiritual. And the stories here, they are incredible. If you ever talk to Brian, who heads up the Cross Streets ministry, his testimony is incredible. 
Actually, if you just get to know some of the people in our congregation, their testimonies will blow you away. There are some really incredible stories in this church. And so, in our church, there are still those people on the fringes, like an 18-year disability, and Jesus sees them, and Jesus wants, is calling them over, and he's wanting to talk to them, and he wants to touch them. And so, may we be part of that. May we support that. May we not just look at people and just say, like, yeah, they're here, and not think anything more of it. And may we kind of be part of that kingdom where, where, where the kingdom is established in us, just small, insignificant, and it just blows up. And I think that's partly what Regen is. We started as this little Bible study of less than 10 people in the back of a nightclub. And it just kind of, we just kind of did the thing. And it started with people like you, just right here. People we met and we studied the Bible and God put something in our heart to do something more and may the Lord continue his work here. Let's pray. Father, you have been so faithful to us, so gracious to us in how you've blessed us with provision, with mission and vision in serving your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would give us humility as we move forward. May you squelch any pride that would come from us. We desire, Lord, to be servants of yours, submitting ourselves entirely to your will, serving you in obedience. May we walk in your spirit, not based off of our talents, not based off of our resources, even though you've given us those things to work with, but may that be secondary to the leading of your spirit. May we mostly depend on you and the talents and the gifts that you've provided us, Lord, and and that you want us to work and put forth effort. May we have the discernment when, when that is to take place and not move before you. In Jesus' name, amen.